Monomery Cox, and I like to see a man of advancing years throwing caution to the wind. Ooh. Way to go, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Repeated games. And pathological narcissism. <laughs> Today, we'll be talking about Groundhog Day, which is available on AMC Plus and Stars, or for rental on one of many streaming platforms, including Amazon Prime. Next week, we're talking about Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. And then, nope. Nope. Uh, Jordan did Peele's, you actually, nope. did you see the Pedro Pascal SNL, Dan? I've seen a few skits from it, but not, I suspect the one that you're, you're refer, or, God, sorry. Because you don't, because you have no idea, you're like, why is she bringing this up now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm bringing sorry. it up now because there was a very funny sketch, which had, um, it was like the big Hollywood quiz and it had, oh. the characters were all film people of some kind, mm-hmm. like teaching film or writing yeah. about film. And none of them had any knowledge of anything past like 2020, <laughs> 2020, 15, 2020 or 2015. And I'm like, that's me. There you go. <laughs> and yep. the, but the joke was name three films from the past five years. <laughs> that was like one of the quiz questions. Oh, dear. Or three films from this year. It was very recent. And uh, the Pedro Pascal character got to two and the host was like can you think of any others and he said nope and they were like oh you win (laughs) okay that that was funny you have to trust me that was funny i I believe it and then we're going to talk about tanana rive due's my soul to keep and we're always taking suggestions there are ways you can give us suggestions we're both on social media ish we used to be yeah. on Twitter. We used uh, to be on Twitter. I'm kind of sort of still on Twitter, but not really. Like, I'm mostly just using it to tweet out stuff I've written. But we are both on Mastodon, and I'm on Post, and Anna's on Instagram, and I'm on Substack. So, But you know a really good way to get in touch with us, Dan? I I believe, I'm, I'm now hold on, let me guess. If someone becomes a patron, that would That's work, right. right. That, that is that correct. Works. That is correct. You should become a patron. Uh, go to patreon.com slash space the nation because our favorite benefit we don't i don't know if it's everyone's favorite benefit i mean you do get shows early but you mm-hmm. get access to our amazing discord which is full of wonderful people who talk about all kinds of things and we have some wild debates mm-hmm. <laughs> about things that don't always have to do with science fiction honestly and one of the I, things i like re- about reading the discord on it is how like one of us might ask something or, you know, like this is a straightforward question. And then the debate just like goes on a very interesting tangent, which I would not have predicted ex ante. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating. Yeah. And it's, it covers all kinds of things. And of course, there's an Adorables channel uh, in addition to kind of talking about all things sci-fi and current events. The other benefits of being a patron, like I said, you get uh, things early. I am working on the merch. This was a running joke for a long time. It is now just a problem with supply lines and everyone wanting t-shirts and me having to do this among other things. But it is coming. Also, Dan, I have an announcement. Oh, yes, Anna. What do you say? I am going to be doing a bi-weekly column for the New Republic. Yay! I have a column. Congratulations, Anna. Beside my name. And it's about politics. I said I can write about other stuff now. I've extended my range. And they're like, no, <laughs> politics. All right. I, said, I okay, mean, to be this... fair, that's kind of what the New Republic does. I think, I think yeah, you should be flattered, Anna. They're like saying, Anna, please write about the thing that we are supposed to be good at. Like, that's, <laughs> that's how much we trust you. <laughs> I am also somewhat nominally their Texas correspondent, which I, ah. I think is appropriate these days <laughs> to have someone who is keeping an eye on texas because as goes texas so goes the world and i i i don't mean that entirely in a good way well that actually raises an interesting question on it how are you yes well dan you know things were kind of dark here for a while (laughs) and i don't mean that metaphorically oh you mean literally (laughs) oh why would that be on i don't understand well Infrastructure in Texas, not so great, turns out, in case you didn't already know. In this case, unfortunately, we can't solely blame Republicans, which is a favorite pastime of mine. Mm -hmm. But it is 
largely sort of climate related that our trees in Austin have been stressed from drought and repeated cold. And we have above ground power lines because we are on really weird soil. And it was a tree apocalypse here, basically. Ooh, because of the bitter cold. Because frost. of the bitter cold, it was an ice storm. And yeah. for a while, 30% of Austin was out, was without power. Yikes. So, yeah. It, it was Not cold. Good. It was cold. Mm -hmm. So that's how I was. I'm better now. I appreciate the warm weather more than I would, perhaps. <laughs> and I will say two things about the experience. One is that for the first day, it was actually kind of fun, like camping out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I have a fireplace. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I can do this. Day three started to be not fun, Dan. <laughs> Were you wearing a rope as a belt at that point? <laughs> I always think of the, what happens to Homer Simpson when Marge leaves. Like, within, like, a few hours, he's, like, you know, just in utter chaos. I don't think I changed clothes for three days. That's actually... Oh, dear. Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, I couldn't all right. Because I don't... We don't have... So we're sharing on that level. I've got it's, it now. It's all, okay. it's all electric heat, and so I couldn't even take a shower. And Oof. Anyway... But I am better. I appreciate the conveniences of modern life, and I will check in with you now, Dan. What's up? Um, not much. I am in one of those phases where, like, I've agreed to do stuff, and now I'm looking at the calendar <laughs> and seeing that all that stuff is coming due. But, but, I, I gotta say, for once, I'm like, I think I might actually be able to do it. So, like, I've actually, you know, written a couple papers, and I'm gonna have to write a couple more, and... You know, I'm having one of those months where, like, I feel like I'm getting in good writing shape, and that's always a good feeling, because that doesn't always happen. But yes. Oh, I'm glad to hear that, Dan. Get a yes. lot of writing done. Well, I'll, yeah. although that's exactly. a weird thing to say. It's like, oh, you're in good shape. Run more. You should run as many miles as possible. Some, I know that sounds weird. I I sort of think. I mean, I don't know about how you feel about this, but with with me writing, there is a sort of aerobic quality to it. Of the more writing I do the easier it becomes to write. But like, there's a point after which I will then have a fallow period, I have no doubt. But the periods where I do feel like I can write without that much effort are rare enough that when it happens, I just sort of try to block out everything else going on in the world and just write as much as humanly possible. I would like to go on about this because I have thoughts about the writing <laughs> process, which we've discussed on and off. Yes. But that will be a separate podcast, Fair Anna enough. and Dan, on writing. Yes. That would actually be fun. <laughs> we should do a special one on that. I would love doing that. We'll do a special one for patrons. We'll do a Patreon-only yes. episode that's just t us talking about our writing process. Yes. Let's get to the meat of the matter. Let's get to our topic of discussion today, which is... Groundhog Day. I'm sorry. Wh what did you say? Oh, I'm sorry. I said uh, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day? Yeah. What movie Groundhog are we doing? Day. We're doing Groundhog Day, I believe, on it. Sorry, that's you, you have to do that when the movie yes. comes up, I think. Yep. Yeah. I think it's, it's necessary. It's kind of mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. But this is our close for cold sci-fi winter. <laughs> I and, did it that time. Excellent. And as to why we're doing this, I think one of the patrons actually suggested it in the comments. Um, I could be mistaken about that. That is correct. And I believe they suggested it jokingly. And as with many things in my life, I took a joke too far, Dan. <laughs> well, I, let me just wait. I was enthusiastic about it, too, because if for nothing else, let's be honest, how often do we get a chance to do a rom-com on this podcast? I mean, we're mostly doing sci-fi and poli-sci. Kind of hard to, you know, we don't talk about romance all that much on this podcast. Although at the end of this episode, by the end of this episode, you might figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> True. Spoiler yes. alert. Yeah, I I think this counts as a science fiction movie. I genuinely think this counts as a science fiction movie. Yeah, absolutely. It is also the 30th anniversary of the movie. So Ooh. we're accidentally totally hitting a news cycle, which we rarely do. <laughs> so I'm very proud of us. Yay, serendipity, because we don't yeah, always There is this. a news hook. We could send out <laughs> press releases. I like it. I like it. There we go. Now, our next question is, should someone watch this before they listen to the pod? Right. Will this podcast uh, ruin it for you? And I think the answer is very clearly no, for two reasons. First of all, I suspect a lot of the listeners have already watched this movie. It's been around for, as Anna said, 30 years. So it's not like 
you know, you're necessarily going to be shocked by it. But I think even if you haven't seen it, it doesn't matter in terms of like knowing the plot. The plot is a great hook and everyone knows what you say the word Groundhog Day and, and you know, or it's a Groundhog Day style film. Everyone knows what that's referencing now. And the enjoyment of the film is not from just the plot. It's the craft of it and the performances that make it work, I would suggest. I highly agree. Good. In fact, I'll go one further with a little more foreshadowing, which is to say, if you're already familiar with it, maybe don't watch it. Let it live in your mind as an enjoyable experience. <laughs> oh, ouch. Okay. Yep, yep. We're, we're going to have some fun Remember it fondly without any knowledge of the stuff we're about to talk about. <laughs> yep. Which does lead to an important question. Our previous experience, particularly with a film like this, which is 30 years old. Anna, when did you see this first? I am positive I saw it in the theater mm -hmm. probably with my first husband, oh, I'm okay. thinking. Mm -hmm. And I am pretty sure I haven't seen it since because it, it, it has changed. Or rather, I'm sorry, big difference. I've changed. Yes. And Culture the world has changed. has changed also. The world has changed. Again, I, I don't want to get too weird here already. It is a good movie. Yeah. Like, just, it's a good movie. And I enjoyed it thoroughly in the theater. I remember that. Dan, mm. what about you? Same. I am pretty sure I saw this movie on a date, but I'm not going to lie. It, how do I put this gently? That period in my life was not my greatest dating period as things go. It was sort of, I was in between very serious relationships and, and I try not to remember that period. That I so want to know more, Dan, but <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for the on craft side there we podcast. Go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. The point is, I think I've blocked out who I saw that movie with. I don't honestly remember, but I do remember seeing the theater. I remember enjoying it. And also, I don't know if this was the first, only I think the second time I've watched the movie from beginning to end. I, mm. you know, it, it's one of those movies that appears every once in a while you know, on basic cable. And I'm sure I caught bits and pieces of it before, but this is the first sec, only the second time I think I watched it from beginning to end. And now, Dan. Now we get to the story behind the story. This one I suspect is going to run a little longer than most because, Anna, as much as I want to know the story behind the story, I hope in this case, this includes what I guess we could say the story after the story. The one thing I know about this movie is that it had a devastating effect on the relationship between the director, Harold Ramis, and the star, Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of knew that, too. I feel like that's like the cultural detritus of this movie is yeah. we all know what Groundhog Day means. It's right. shorthand, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. then a bunch of people know about this falling out in a relationship that had been very productive. They made six great movies together, including... Yeah. Stripes and Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. And I'm blanking on the other ones. But oh Caddyshack. Dan, yeah. they made Caddyshack together. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing movies. And of course they were together since uh doing Second City in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And this was the end. I think it's a good idea to mention now that it turns out Bill Murray's kind of a dick. <laughs> And his I behavior, hope you're sitting down, listeners. I hope yeah, you were sitting down for that. Yep. His behavior over the years that kind of weirdly started with this movie, apparently, or his behavior really got out of hand with this movie. Now that I didn't been... know. I mean, I know I've I'd heard stories, but I didn't realize this movie in some ways was where he really starts is the, the origins of his dickish behavior on set. And I think it's it's tied together. It's all tied together because I think one of the reasons it's the origin of his dickish behavior is because, ironically, this is when he became a star and started really demanding things. Mm -hmm. And he was also going through a rough divorce, but none of that excuses his behavior then or since. It, Like I said, turns out to be a pattern. Multiple people have come forward in the past couple of years, men and women, to talk about his abusive behavior, both verbally and physically uh, gina davis has a really harrowing story about him forcing her to lie down on a hotel bed and using ah. a massager on her against her will and with other men present ah, like, oh, you ah. have to try this you have to try this oh god yeah oh all right yep okay even worse potentially mm -hmm. 
A movie that he was working on this past year actually shut down filming over an incident with him and a production assistant where he straddled and kissed her mm. forcibly. Now, they were both wearing masks. But, okay, that doesn't... Well, that, Yeah, I know. That's like, just weird to, on a variety weird, of ways. It's weird, and yeah. he insists it was a joke, but also he settled out of court for $100,000. So... Yeah. He's he's not a great guy. And and like yeah. I said, this seems to be the movie where he really kind of let it go. Hmm. He was abusive and demanding with the crew. He apparently threw Harold Ramis up against a wall at one point. He would call Ramis at all hours and make demands about the script. Uh, at one point, they were only communicating through Bill Murray's assistant. And Ramis has said he considered it a good day if Murray showed up. Oy. So... <laughs> So I think we can say that Murray's a great actor. I mean, yeah, I mean, because none it, of this really comes through as a bad person, right? And I do think he's a really good actor. I, and he's he's good in this role as well. I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone else playing this role. But I am kind of curious. So, like, okay, plenty of people have had bad moving and making experiences, and then actually managed to talk to each other afterwards. This did not happen in this case. No, they didn't talk for twenty years. Jesus. And Murray has literally said nothing about it. Like, he will not comment on it. It's actually very sad because Harold Ramis has talked about it, and he's very generous. He talks about how Bill Murray was going through a really tough time. He's had a divorce, and it's personal. There was a quote in one profile where Harold Ramis said, I know he would, like, give me his kidney, but he won't answer my calls. <laughs> wow. In 2004, Harold Ramis tried to cast him in one of his movies, and Murray said no through an intermediary and just said no did not elaborate <laughs> and the theory and... among their mutual friends mm -hmm. is that bill murray resented harold ramus because there is a feeling among their friends that bill murray would not be bill murray without harold ramus that it was his direction his writing his kind of like forming of the personas that got bill murray to where he is I'm I mean, shrugging I, my shoulders, listeners. I am raising my I, hands and shrugging my shoulders. I mean, I'm just going to say, first of all, A, that's objectively true. I mean, you know, yeah. Bill, Bill Murray was on Saturday Night Live, and there's no denying he's a gifted comedic performer, but it's not until Ghostbusters and then this movie, Groundhog Day, where he's really sort of suddenly, you know, goes to the next level. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine resenting someone for making your life that much better. I don't know. It, it's just... It's a little strange. So they never spoke again because Harold Ramis has passed away since uh, yes. about Harold seven Ramis or years died ago, of an autoimmune disorder in 2014. Oh. Oh, and I'm going to I want to tell this as, as though it's like a happy ending, but it's hard because mm. what happened was Vilmarie showed up on Harold Ramis's doorstep without calling ahead in February of 2014, literally months before Ramus died, and he showed up with donuts. Well, that's nice and at least. That is nice. At this point, Harold Ramus could neither talk nor walk. Ay. And so it was presumably a rather one-sided rapprochement. His daughter, Harold Ramus's daughter, says that they made amends to each other. And it wasn't... His mind was fine, I, I should say. Right, like, right. So it wasn't as though... Bill Murray showed up too late to make amends at all. And like mm. with, with someone, it was a, something they could do, but it is a weird, it's a very weird story. Bill Murray seems troubled. <laughs> yes. But as we have unfortunately often had to say, when we talk about things on this, this podcast there, you do occasionally have to separate the, the artist from the art. And so yeah. it is good that you know all of this, that doesn't mean you still can't enjoy Groundhog Day because if, among other reasons, it is Harold Ramis's work as well as Bill Murray's. Yes, yes. But hopefully now we can actually get to the story behind the story. Which is interesting. Um, yeah. Also. So tell me, Anna, where did this uh, idea come from? Because this is like now, the funny thing is, is that we it's debatable whether Groundhog Day is part of sci-fi. I think it clearly is. But clearly a lot of sci-fi films have taken advantage of the Groundhog Day scenario. And we have talked about one of them, Edge of Tomorrow, yeah. which we both liked uh, yes. and is basically Groundhog Day in war. Although, right. 
as we discussed at the time, one of the original places this trope appears is in a World War I era pamphlet called The Defense of Duffer's Drift. Right. If people are interested, they should go back and listen to that because, you know, when I get interested in this stuff, I tend to go on, so I won't go on again. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Huh? But the idea, the idea for this particular movie was not generated from science fiction. Well, well, actually, Dan, it was. It was okay. obviously inspired by Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. I mean, you see. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I could totally make that connection. I have a PhD, <laughs> um, Anna. I could do that. No, yeah. sorry. I'm confused. The How leap. the hell did Anne Rice play a role here? Screenwriter Danny Rubin was reading it and he got to thinking. And I think this is this is kind of a with how screenwriters, how ideas come to be. He was like, what if this happened to like a regular show? If, a, huh. if just a regular person was immortal, right? Okay. And that's kind of an interesting idea. What I love is that he was in the middle of trying to put together a spec script, a calling card script, like one that isn't mm -hmm. necessarily going to get produced, but would like get his foot in the door with yeah. Hollywood producers. So he thought if he wrote a movie that took place over like thousands of years, that would be really expensive because you'd have to change a lot of sets. Mm -hmm. So he thought, well, I'll just repeat one day and that'll be very inexpensive to film. It's actually kind of genius. It is genius, right? Yep. And he chose Groundhog Day because it was literally like the next holiday coming up. <laughs> and I don't know why, like choosing Groundhog Day is perfect. It, it really is. So wait, what is, uh, what has Danny Rubin gone on to do, by the way? Not much. <laughs> oh, okay. I was he not has, expecting that answer. <laughs> yeah, he has, I think, four other film credits. Okay. One of them for the, I want to say, Italian adaptation of Groundhog Day. <laughs> and also he wrote he wrote the the reboot of Freaky Friday, which is a genuinely great movie. Oh, the Jamie Lee Curtis, Lindsay Lohan one. OK, yes, that, that is. So yes. that's his other big movie. And then huh. not much else. He had a bit of a rebound actually in 2021, which is when Groundhog Day, the musical, which as someone who's not super into musicals and who finds the whole thing kind of tiresome, I laugh at that. But apparently yeah. it was good and it was on Broadway and it was oh. nominated for Tony's. So huh. I didn't know. bully for him. I am happy for him. Fair and enough. he got stuff. He It's not like he's lived in obscurity or, well, I guess mm -hmm. you could argue obscurity. It's not like he's been destitute or anything. He's sold scripts. It's just nothing has been produced. Well, that's not on him. So that's fair. Yeah, it's, well... <laughs> Hollywood is a complicated Just business. Having having read the whole thing, I think it's we can point out here in a way much as with his his idea to keep it to one day to make it inexpensive. This movie is the product of a very creative people going up against studio hmm. people and working within the restrictions of the studio. We've talked before how like that sometimes can actually create genius. Right, that creative tension can actually do great things. I have yeah. one last question about the story behind the story on, and then we should probably move on, which is, yeah. in some ways, this movie is so indelibly associated with Bill Murray that that seems like, you know, like it, it seems impossible to imagine anyone else could have played the part. That said, who was potentially thought of as someone who could have played the part? There's some really interesting casting decisions, I have to say. Uh, Kevin okay. Klein was the first choice, which huh. I, I think totally works. I could see actually. that, yeah. Kevin Klein could totally have pulled that off. Yes, absolutely. Because Danny Rubin was concerned that Bill Murray wouldn't have the acting chops. Harold <laughs> Ramis. <laughs> Harold Ramis saves the day yet again. Saves the day. Uh, yep. Also considered Chevy Chase, uh, Tom Hanks, Ooh. and Michael Keaton. All of which makes sort of, you can kind of see them. Chevy Chase is the only one that I'm not entirely sure could have pulled it off. He could have He's pulled little, off the he, first part of it. but Yeah, I'm not sure if he could carry the more philosophical, serious parts. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks apparently thought it would go against his type. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> Too much of a dick. I, I, he said that in an interview where he may have been joking. So <laughs> we'll just assume that he was joking. Fascinatingly, Andy McDowell was pretty much the only person they considered huh. for Rita she uh -huh. and she's great i think she's fantastic and yeah, yeah. effortless grace to the role yes. yes one reviewer said i could not find a citation for this but but i want it to be true print the Apparently legend they what also is it? they also considered tori amos <laughs> for the role oh my god yeah. okay yeah i think that's that's canon now as far as i'm concerned that that's good sure totally 
And Dan, one last thing. IP is a flat circle. There's a video game version of this. Oh, God. Seriously? It I is. guess it and kind it, of makes I, sense, actually. Like, oddly enough, it does kind of work a little bit like a video game. That's it's not like video insane, games yeah. are, right? Yeah, yeah. It is a video game. The whole thing is a video game. So yep. it makes sense to me. Fair enough. Uh, okay. No one's ever wanted to do a sequel, which I think is good. <laughs> Thank Christ. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. This is... All right, Dan. It is cold sci-fi winner. Yes. <laughs> That's true. So, so how, it's worth how, delving into just how cold is the setting? How cold was it, Anna? You know, that one shot on the highway did look pretty cold, actually, by the way. It did look cold. Like, when yeah. the blizzard's actually coming in, it did look cold. Apparently, also, just can't help it. Uh, it was very cold when they filmed it. Ah. So that's one mm -hmm. of the reasons Murray seems to have indicated he was in such a shitty mood. But, Dan, yeah. compared to Antarctica, uh, I yes. say? Was well, it, you know, was Anna, compared I've to been in Antarctica. I don't know if I've mentioned that to you <laughs> in the past. Um <laughs> I would say it looked a little cold, but you know, it's not Antarctica level cold. It's it's just it's just you know normal it's Pennsylvania just February cold. It's just yes. chilly. Yes, exactly. And now it's time for Chekhov's What's It, <laughs> a sponsor of this podcast. Go to chekhovswhatsit.com slash space the nation to subscribe to your monthly checkoff. <laughs> well, you know, I you mean, can quit what... at any time, but you do have to sign up for repeated checkoffs. <laughs> that is how podcast sponsoring works the things that sponsor podcasts are inevitably subscription things that you can never shut off oh good to know but in this case actually check out what's it is the thing that occurs in the first act that winds up having importance in the third act dan in this movie what was that for you for me it was Chekhov's homeless man which i remember from originally watching the movie but again this is the case where like watching it again i had forgotten that he appears in the first couple like scenes and actually in all seriousness that's some of bill murray's best acting where he's doing the sort of fake looking for money and then like the moment he passes him just you know it's like it, it's like a quick five second shot of how much of a dick he is it was it's well done what about you Anna? we will say this again bill murray is fantastic in yeah. this like he's yeah. it is just one of his best roles probably yeah i was gonna say Chekhov's clock radio Oh, fair enough. Which, yes, of course. <laughs> it, it appears throughout, but it does play an incredibly important role in that last scene. I do think we should point out, however, that Chekhov himself makes an appearance in the film. That I is mean, correct. Bill, you know, like <laughs> Phil quotes Chekhov. We can't say in, Chekhov's yeah. Chekhov's, unfortunately, because it's only yeah, one appearance. But Exactly. But but just, it, you know, it's nice to know that he appears. Well, speaking of the film, Dan, let's get to it. All right, let's get to the plot. Here we go. Act one, meet the Phil's. My, what a high opinion Phil Connors has for himself. He's a local weatherman in Pittsburgh who calls himself the talent in non-ironic fashion. He, his new producer Rita, and cameraman Larry head out to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover Groundhog Day, and whether Punxsutawney Phil, the more famous Phil, will see his shadow. It's safe to say that Phil ain't thrilled about being in this small town year after year for this event. His behavior on Groundhog Day rages from snarky, most of his wisecracks, to egocentric, Rita literally says this later on in the film, too creepy in the way that he hits on Rita. However, a weather storm that Phil predicted wrongly keeps them snowbound in Punxsutawney for the night. When Phil wakes up the next morning, however, it's not the next morning. It's Groundhog Day all over again. The same song plays as his alarm goes off. The same homeless guy asks him for change outside the diner. The same annoying high school classmate of Phil's recognizes him on the street. It's a mystery. Okay, Anna, I'm, I have a question for you, and I'm going to ask this as delicately as possible. Um, you worked for MTV on, on air, correct, Anna? Mm-hmm. Which means you two were the talent. Um, did any of Phil's behaviors ring true to you? I believe I dodged a bullet <laughs> in terms of what what being on tv does to people mm. i was not on on very much which you know yeah there's a, a downside to having not really cracked yeah yeah <laughs> that medium mm -hmm. but also i never had the experience of being the center of attention for a very long time mm -hmm. and that is what being a television presenter as our friends in the uk say which i think is a much better description of what it is that people who are journalists do right. on tv mm -hmm. it is so weird though it is mind-bending because when you are quote unquote the talent 
everyone does stuff for you. <laughs> like you're not really allowed to do anything. Like they get you stuff because you you shouldn't move because like you're you're on you're in right. the right place and you have you got to be camera ready. And yeah, exactly. Got to be yeah, camera yeah. ready. So like, oh, you yeah. need something. You need this. You need that. And mm -hmm. like all your opinions matter. <laughs> and it was very odd to experience, but it did help me understand something that I think you and I have talked about before, which is what happens to normal people when they go on television regularly for a long time. <laughs> yes. We have mutual friends. Mm -hmm. And not, not mutual friends, just friends. Yeah. Independently friends who have made it on to cable news. Mm -hmm. And it does something to your brain. It really does. Dan is nodding. He's yeah, refusing I'm nodding. to really weigh in. <laughs> I, well, no, actually what I was thinking of, believe it or not, is I'm thinking of the people who, who let me put it this way. I know people, we both know people for whom this has happened to and haven't changed all that much. There's a few. And they, and, and the point is they are the exception rather than the rule. Yes. Is the way I would put yes. it. Yes. And we have named Chris Hayes as the, as the prime yeah. example. Wonderful yeah. person. Still very amazing journalist and mm. just very curious. I love him. He's yeah. awesome. And we just won't name anybody else. <laughs> nope. Nope. We don't need to go there. No. But the point being that Phil's behavior is entirely predictable in that sense. I, I want to say one thing about famous people, though, which is I know a few famous people, like famous, famous, not just like cable news famous, which right. isn't that famous. Mm -hmm. And I've interviewed a ton of actual famous people, like famous, famous, famous people, people, yeah, yeah. Grammys, Oscars, that kind of famous. Mm -hmm. They don't fall for this as much. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it, but I've also seen like super cool regular person behavior. I wonder if part of this is the age at which you get famous, famous, I was famous. thinking that. Because the people we know for whom this has happened to tend to be a little bit older when this happened to them. And I do kind of wonder if for some reason that screws up people. Whereas when you're talking about Oscar winners or Grammy winners and so on and so forth, they usually enter the business at a young age. And I suspect perhaps by the time you've gotten to them, they've moved down the learning curve a little bit. I'm not entirely sure about this. Here's an alternate hypothesis, which I like okay. yours as well, which okay. is they know a bunch of other famous, famous, famous people. Oh, that's a fair point. Whereas okay. if you're a journalist and you're like, cable news famous you know a lot of other <laughs> journalists who are not cable news famous not only that you know a lot of other journalists who knew you when you were not famous and who you suspect wish they were cable news famous <laughs> okay ending yep. on on that particular topic i do want to point out two things do you remember yep. when ordering an espresso meant you were an elite out of touch liberal you remember yep. that Oh yeah, totally. That happens in this. That happens in this movie. I was thinking then, that we we talk. There are various ways we're going to talk about the ways in which this film is still is dated, and one of the ways was like that bed and breakfast totally would have had an espresso machine in twenty twenty three. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 And then also there is a line at the very beginning of the movie that I hope you noticed when <laughs> Phil says, "Someone's going to see me interviewing a groundhog and think I don't have a future," <laughs> which I laughed at, yep. knowing what was coming, and it's clever. It is a clever line. Okay, let's get to act two. You learn a lot drinking in a bowling alley. By the third Groundhog Day, Phil realizes he's stuck in a loop. He's at a loss about what to do. He sees doctors and they obviously can't help him. By the way, this again, this shows another thing where like I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten that Harold Ramis is actually in the film very briefly as the doctor. It was actually kind of nice to see him there. So he drowns his sorrows with locals at the bowling alley. One of his drinking buddies points out that if you repeat the same day no matter what, there are no consequences for your behavior. Phil embraces this lesson a bit too vigorously and weaponizes his situation, mostly using it as a means to get laid. He tries to do this with Rita, and after multiple iterations, it comes close to working, but does not. And then with each successive yet more desperate effort, Rita slaps him earlier in the evening. Anna, I... It's interesting that you say that Annie McDowell gets rave reviews for this. I think maybe I'm confusing this with her performance in Four Weddings and a Funeral. But, like, Annie McDowell is not always thought of as a great actress, I guess would be the way to put it. But I will have to say, she's great in this film, and she's really great in that first scene in Phil's hotel room, where it's sort of the furthest Phil gets in the first act, as it were, in terms of actually managing to sleep with Rita. Because there is a brief shot of her when Phil isn't looking, where it's clear that she is legitimately worried about what the hell is going on and is like her mind is racing 
And I love that moment. I had forgotten it from the first time I watched the movie because it grounds the whole scene and it grounds the next couple of scenes because you realize that like, on the one hand, Phil's like trying to put the moves on her. And on the other hand, Rita somehow suspects that something is wrong. Is something is wrong? <laughs> That's where I'm going to drill down. Okay, fair enough. Go. Yep. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Yeah. But watching that series of scenes today, knowing mm -hmm. what I personally now know about mm -hmm. Bill Murray, pretty creepy. Like, pretty creepy shit. And... I... <laughs> Disturbing, mm -hmm. also kind of demented. That was actually the thing I texted you. That it 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 seems obsessive and stalkery, right? On Phil's part, not just like I do think that that hotel scene winds up being date rapey. Period. She mm -hmm. says no. She tells yeah. him don't do that, and right. then he keeps doing it, which is the definition of not having consent. Mm -hmm. But yes, okay, fine. Different time. People had different sort of blinders on. What I think I'm interested in, if you saw this at all, is that he does seem kind of twisted about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, No, the reason I think the, look at this way, the reason I think the sequence still holds up, I understand why you, you it, it, it can creep out people, but in some ways, the reason I think the film endures is precisely like the added desperation that Phil has as it keeps not working. Because in some ways is that, Look at this way. Watching this film in the early '90s, you know there were rom-com norms or standards or like rules of the road, as it were. And unfortunately, what Phil is doing in the first part seems perfectly fine. But then the film makes you realize, no, this is not. Not only is it not working, the moment you realize it's not working, it gets more and more awkward. Like the I think one of Bill Murray's best moments is after it stops working and he's like trying to like you know start the snowball fight again with the kids. And you can see like that laughing is just getting more demented and Rita is creeped out and you understand why it like doesn't work. And so I think weirdly that behavior is actually educating the audience that this is not right. I mean, that's the thing that I think the reason why this film works. I sort of see what you're saying. And I do yeah. think this is a case of like rom-com norms changing a yeah, lot, yeah, which yeah, is absolutely. we, there's now a meme, right? Which is it used to be normal rom-com behavior. And now you'd call the police. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and obviously like you can't call the police in this particular instance, or you could, but it would not work out. It would work out weird. Mm -hmm. It's, it, I, I mean, I think you're, you're seeing it. I think we're seeing the same thing and yeah. it just disturbs me a little bit more, but which I can't say if that's, yeah. I can't say what that has roots in. That part of our discussion squared away. Yes. <laughs> Dan, if you were stuck in a time loop, this is I, I, one of the first things I thought of to ask you. <laughs> what would you assume is happening? Oh, what God. would be your first theory? If you're like, oh, my God, I'm stuck in a time loop. Like you could, you might have the reference in your head, like Bill Murray. I mean, I, I was going to say, I would, I would probably assume a Groundhog Day plot where I'm like, oh, okay. I need to, there must be some task or some, if, if I'm the one who's looping, in other words, if I'm the only one looping and no one else is aware of it, then. <laughs> I must then, have sinned. <laughs> well, no, like, I, first of all, it, I mean, it said something, said, it, I hadn't thought about this, but it does make you a little bit of a narcissist, right? Because, you know, you're assuming literally your universe is centered around you. There has to be something going on that you've done that has led this to happen. But oh, he's a narcissist. I think actually yeah. that's, that's clear. Oh, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would you would assume okay we're in a Groundhog Day situation. I think I might think I was do? in a coma. Ooh. Because hmm. it couldn't be real. Like could if it? It, I mean I'm trying to be like as realist. I'm trying to be like In other words, you're trying to ground this as much as possible. Happened. Yeah. I don't know. I think I was, part of it my is My first guess would be I'm in a coma because okay. I'm not waking up and I keep right. this keeps happening. But I don't know if I believe in purgatory and then I would go to purgatory. Coma then purgatory. Purgatory is not a bad, yeah, that could be a, that could be another explanation. Which I would still try to change my behavior, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I have to do a real thorough self-examination. Like, I think I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty decent person, but I guess if you that know was what, happening. Anna, this is one of those moments where, again, I want you to watch The Good Place. I know you've resisted this, but like, there is a Groundhog Day element to some of what happens yes. at, at various times in The Good Place. So, and in right, some let's ways, move yeah. let's move okay. on. Let's move on. Good, good, good place recommendation noted. All right. Whatever time. Let's get to Act Three Dark Phil memes. 
Spurned by Rita, Phil's days start taking on an increasingly sour cast. He kidnaps Punxsutawney Phil, and they drive into a pit, killing himself until 6 a.m. when he wakes up again. Phil keeps trying to off himself, and it just doesn't stick. He finally confesses his situation to Rita, demonstrating his by now complete omniscience about the townsfolk of Punxsutawney. She believes him this time, and they stay up and talk until about midnight. Rita suggests that maybe he should think of his situation as a gift to improve on his obvious self-loathing. Beginning with the next loop, Phil does seem to follow Rita's advice and does act like a changed man. He helps out Rita and Larry in setting up the Groundhog Day shot. He starts reading real books. He learns the piano. He learns to ice sculpt and other skills. He hugs Ned Ryerson close, real close. He tries to save a homeless man from dying multiple times, but to no avail. Anna, I think this is the part of the film that has caused it to earn the sort of serious metaphysical consideration that it now receives. And that's in part because it ranges from the delightfully silly, because I have to say, I did just laugh at the sight of the groundhog in front of the steering wheel. I don't know whether they used a real groundhog or what, but like that they was They did, a, actually. Trivia. It was a- They did. That was a funny and, looking groundhog. And he bit Bill Murray. Oh, Okay. <laughs> The groundhog knew, Anna. The groundhog yeah, could sense groundhog this stuff. Knew. Yeah, the groundhog knew. Who knows enough. where Bill Murray tried to touch the groundhog? That yeah. <laughs> but also the tragic sequence uh, with, I believe, Pop is the character's name. Yeah. Uh, which loop do you like the best? I agree. This is where you get all the metaphysical questions raised yeah. and not necessarily answered. I will also point out here that Harold Ramis was a Buddhist. Oh. Okay. And... That definitely inflected his thinking. He was, and he was the co-writer. He went up with Danny Rubin. They okay. rewrote Rubin's original script. So, mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff is a really good melding of the two of them. And I would say it's safe to say that they had very different sensibilities. Rubin, much more serious writer in general, it sounds like, and he sounds like he's pretty proud of that. Yeah. And then Ramis, more straight out comedic. But in this particular place in the film, you see their interests and their sort of skills overlap in a way that makes a genius. It actually, right? we, we use this word not so seriously a lot, but synergy does seem to apply here. Yes. Yeah. I think it is a great sequence. I found the sequence with dad or pops to yeah. be very affecting. Mm -hmm. And if I had to have a favorite one, it's a really subtle one and a quick one, but mm -hmm. I think you'll appreciate it, which yes. is the scene when he's reading in the diner. Yeah. Because there's a moment where he looks up from his book and the diner's closing. Did you notice that? I remember him reading. Like, yeah, you're right. Yes, that's correct. Now The I remember. diner's yeah, closing yeah. around him mm -hmm. and he realizes, I think it's super subtle, but I actually, again, Bill Murray's so good. He just, yeah. he communicates so much. And my read of that scene is he realizes he's been lost in a book, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is one of the most delightful things I think that a human can experience, to be honest. I, I love that feeling when I look up and an hour has gone by. And for him, it's got to be even more delightful because, again, if you've yeah. experienced the same day ad infinitum, just the idea of being lost in a different cognitive universe has got to be wonderful. Do you, so, do yes. you, do you remember that he has this like little smile? He like sort yeah. of looks around like, oh, what happened? And he has a little smile on his face. And it's just it's very dear to me. Let me put it this way. I I. I will. I would disagree with you somewhat in terms of whether people should watch this movie again because I think there's actually a lot of good subtle acting in this film. You're right that like you have to sort of know about some of the parts of it have not aged terrifically, but a lot of it has, and in part it's because of those small little moments. But yes, we're going to talk even more. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I, I don't disagree. I, I if we're going to do the philosophical talk here, yeah, Dan, mm -hmm. can I? Can I? I'm curious Please. for you. And yeah. I also want to say a couple of things for myself as far as how, what this made me think about mm -hmm. deep thoughts for my own life. I think there is a very strong parallel in the experience of the Groundhog Day to addiction. Hmm. Addiction, you would be shocked, Dan, by how boring it is. <laughs> it is like lots of dramatic things can happen, but the life of an addict or an alcoholic tends at some point builds around obtaining the thing that you use. Right, it gets reduced to that, basically. That's it. Yeah. It's just you'll do anything to get that thing and to feel mm -hmm. that way, and that is all you want, and all the days blend together. And it feels, you feel trapped. You mm -hmm. feel also powerless over your, like, there's nothing I can do. As many of us have experienced me, like, I thought, I've tried everything. It is such a close parallel. I tried to commit suicide. Yeah. Like, I thought I was trapped. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's also the breakthrough that this parallels as well, which is that yeah. a lot of people don't quite grok this. And I, you and I have talked about it before, which is the power of surrendering to your addiction or your alcoholism, which doesn't mean you go along with it. Mm-hmm. You're just like, yep, that is what I am. I am an alcoholic. And within that space, if I accept the universe as that is, what can I do? And you start to get to make choices. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's accepting I'm an alcoholic. So I just, all right, well, there that's my restriction, right? Mm-hmm. But what can I do? What can I do with the gift that I've been given mm-hmm. of knowing that I have this, of knowing that this is my place in the universe? And I think I've talked about this before too, which is that I believe it is a gift to know I'm an alcoholic. And not everyone gets a gift to know their place. Not everyone gets a gift to know what their role is. And I have an idea of what it is. And that can help keep me going through dark times. So I'm curious, Dan, for you, do you have any, like, did anything hit you from this movie? I mean, I think in some ways, the thing that I found most powerfully affecting about this film is that it is about choice in some ways. It's about... (laughs) you know, what does Phil choose to do with his knowledge? And it's unsurprising the arc that he takes of first, you know, just trying to weaponize it to be able to, like, do whatever he wants. But that doesn't, as in some ways, like an addict, he doesn't, he gets those short-term highs, but it doesn't actually work Mm -hmm. over the long term. And I think the other thing that, that comes through weirdly in this film, especially given the backstory that you talked about, is what Bill Murray absolutely nails is the self-loathing that Phil has about himself. You know, and he says it at various points and also behaves at various points. Like, you know, he simultaneously thinks he's above everyone else, but he also, I think, secretly knows that he's not. And there are ways in which he doesn't... What what The, the part that I really liked was basically Rita pointing out that, that he had been making bad choices all of this time, that there were other options available that Phil himself could not have realized on his own, which I think is therefore why in the end, it's not just that he, you know, is besotted with Rita for the the obvious superficial reasons. I think, you know, in the end, without Rita's advice, he doesn't escape the loop um, without the recognition that even if you are trapped in, you know, a cycle over and over and over again, that doesn't mean you can't help people. And in some ways, that's the gift that he learns as a result of this. And, and hopefully from doing so, gets to live the rest of his life. And I would say, again, sort of the weird gift is to realize it's a trap. Yeah. And to then work within that and just do the best that you can without necessarily planning on getting a reward. Right. And then the byproduct of that is that you are released, and I would say, like, that's sobriety. The byproduct yeah. of me trying to be a good person and just doing the best I can and surrendering to my disease means that I haven't had a drug or a drink in, like, 11 plus, you know, 11 years and some months. Yeah. And it is it is a gift. One last point in the philosophical department, which okay. is something I found in sobriety, which is I think this movie illustrates that it is easier to be a good person than a bad person. Hmm. I, I'm not. I will sure. lay out my I, thinking if you like. I, <laughs> okay, say this because I have to say my first reaction is is that I think in the end you're correct, but I also think that is a hard earned piece of knowledge is the problem. Yes. Okay. Sure. That yeah. I will agree. Like I okay. had to go through a fucking bunch of right. shit to realize it. Yeah, but, that's my point. Yeah. But sourness and hate and resentment mm-hmm. take energy yeah they are enough. and you have to you have to do those things you actively have to do them and mm-hmm. it shows a lack of acceptance it shows yeah. that you think you want things to be different and you want things to be the way that you want them and that's why you're mad that's why you're sour because people aren't living up to your expectations you aren't living up to your expectations etc 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 but once you decide you know what i can't have control over other people I am who I am. I'm just going to do the best I can. Mm-hmm. And indeed, when I see I can help others, I will do my best to help others. Life gets easier. And you see that in Phil. Yeah. When he walks around those last few you know, scenes, he has mm-hmm. an ease of himself. He does, yes. Well, no, among other things, the self if nothing else, the self-loathing is gone. He actually likes himself, which allows him to be able to 
you know, or by doing other good deeds, he begins to like himself. And you're right. Again, and it's a subtle part of the, the acting, but it's well done in that sense. And it's also because ultimately, like, you know, doing things for other people, trying to be the best person you can be, gives you energy in, in, yeah. in the opposite, you know, way. Yes. In the opposite a, way. Giving rather than taking. Dan, those are opposites. It's a virtuous circle. Yes. Yes. All right. Let's close with Act 4, The Perfect Day. Phil is now quoting Chekhov in his weather forecast and reaching Larry in a deep emotional way. He does good deeds all throughout the day, saving at least two people from injury or worse. Rita sees him playing flawless piano at the party and seemingly every resident of the town thanking him for his interventions earlier in the day. Moved, she empties her checkbook to buy him at the bachelor auction. He carves an ice sculpture and professes his love for Rita. The next morning, I Got You Babe plays again, but this time Rita shuts off the alarm. It's February 3rd now, and Rita is in bed with him and seems quite the smitten kitten. Phil, happy that it's a new day and that Rita seems into him, proposes they move to Punxsutawney. Anna, do you think Phil remains a changed man? Good question, Dan. <laughs> the deepest philosophical question. Uh, yeah. I'm going to give you a couple more trivia things that I think sort of might give some color to that question or color to okay. how you would answer that question. One is yep. that uh, originally they weren't sure what Rita and he would be wearing or not wearing ah. in that final scene. It should be stressed, by the way, that the, the that, that last night, it's not that Rita's, Rita literally sleeps with Phil, but does not figuratively sleep with Phil. Well, we and we know that from what they're wearing. Right, exactly. And also what they uh, say, like, yeah. Right. And but but so what turns out is that they're both, you know, he's wearing pajamas and she's wearing something. I don't yeah. remember a shirt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a production, a female production assistant who weighed in who, oh. to say the movie will not land if it's at all indicated that they slept together. Yeah. It, it'll 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 shortchange the movie and audiences if it looks like they slept together. I think Good that was the... a, Good, Good for, for that PA, Ms. yeah. PA. Yeah, well done. <laughs> and then this is where we might have a disagreement. I, mm -hmm. Bill Murray, again, we say over and over, so good. Andy McDowell, also good. Yeah. Great. Perhaps because of my now, you know, new way of looking at this and new knowledge, mm -hmm. I couldn't shake the idea that Bill Murray, although pretty generous and seemingly doing all those things because that's just what he wants to do now right the way he looks at rita it's just this weird thing of where i feel like he's still trying to get her to like him huh so in other words you think and deep down he's the self-loathing hasn't disappeared well he he is in a place where he cares whether or not she likes him and yeah. he, there is like a trace of that little bit of manipulation hmm. that comes with trying to get someone to like you. Right. And it could be just me, but it it interrupted my pleasure in what I remember from watching the first time being a really satisfying ending. Yeah. Also, not great. Bachelor auction, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> that was... That was that took me back to high school, seeing that. Not I have great. To admit, like, not good. Yeah. Yep. Not good. Would not happen today. But so there. That's that's it. It didn't ruin the movie for me, but there's just something I wanted a little bit more of or less of. From so I will I will close on a more optimistic note. Let me put it this way: I think I think given who Phil starts out as, you have to allow for the possibility that he reverts to what he was once he is allowed to actually live forward in time. But if you think he's really like, let me put this way, if you accept the Buddhist idea of what's going on or, you know, for lack of putting it, the, even just this sort of hackneyed version of the law of 10,000 hours, I have to assume that like he spent enough time in there to literally become a changed man in the sense of, you know, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. Okay. And if that's how long he was in that loop, then yeah, you. I think change can can continue to occur, but but I acknowledge that you might be right. I think it's an. This way, I think it's an interesting question to debate because I'm not but sure. I what will, the answer is. I will say this just to bring yeah. it back to recovery, which is 
maybe he's not a changed man, but he's a changing man. Ooh, that's good. Let's close that on that. You, your yes. journey's not done at a specific that's fair. point. That's a fair, that's a good way of putting it. Yes. Yeah, but speaking of not being done, Dan, I have a question. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in Groundhog Day? Anna, do you really want to talk about the IR or were you just making chit chat? Okay. <gasps> because if you were just making chit chat, then the quick and dirty answer is that no, there is no IR in this film that we could see. If you really want to talk about the IR, though, <laughs> well, there's a few things we could say. I, I think in some ways, you know, I, we talked at the beginning about how this is about repeated games in some sense. And from a rational choice perspective, you can argue there is a little bit of IR in this film. Because from that perspective, Phil starts out thinking that he's playing an endgame, right? He knows the game is going to end, and at 6 o'clock the next morning, he wakes up and you just repeat things. So there are no consequences. Indeed, that's what one of his drinking buddies says. He really embraces that idea. The whole idea is that basically he gets to play out this loop each time. And generally speaking, in a lot of games that require cooperation... If there is no shadow of the future, then you wind up acting like a dick because it's the last round and you're just going to act for yourself and so on and so forth. And that's what he does for a lot of the movie. It is only when he realizes that there might be a shadow of the future for himself. In other words, there is value in being a good person. There is value in changing and learning things. And that even if, you know, like in the short term, he could maximize his utility by doing some other rando creepy things, he actually tries to better himself. He winds up actually making progress and eventually escapes the loop. And so it does suggest that at least in some ways, one of the things that causes people to become better people and states to occasionally cooperate is the promise of a shadow of the future. And I think, you know, if you just want to put it from a sort of purely like military perspective, from a power perspective, <laughs> it's about the difference between tactical gains versus strategic gains. In other words, weirdly, in the first part of the movie, Phil wins a lot of those days. Like, he gets what he wants, you know, in, in some ways. Or he, like, you know, he can rob a bank or he can sleep with someone by using insider knowledge or what have you. But he doesn't win the larger game. And so, you know, in that sense, thinking more strategically will cause you to prosper, even if you could take, you know, short-term advantage or exploit situations that it actually turns out that if you really care about the future you got to think strategically and not tactically thank you dan thank You're you welcome. professor dresner i have no <laughs> further questions well you know what anna i have a question yes dan is there a critique of capitalism in this film dan maybe the real god uses tricks <laughs> i know that capitalism does <laughs> so i think capitalism's greatest trick is of course that it's almost always invisible, except it is the structure we live in. It is the mm. water we swim in. And indeed, I think this entire movie, taken as a whole, mm -hmm. can be seen as a metaphor for capitalism, Dan. Mm. We're trapped. Okay, Systems yeah. beyond our control. I knew you were going to go with that. Yes. And this is, in fact, the observation of Phil's bowling alley buddies, who's working class bowling alley buddies who are like, shit, man, yeah, know how you feel. When he that actually, has... I really like that scene, by the way. Like, it was great to, like, have Phil say that, not realizing what he was saying, and, like, the blue-collar guy saying, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> We're trapped in a structure that doesn't respond to individual actions. That's mm -hmm. capitalism. And how do we get out of that structure? Collective action, Dan. Collective <laughs> action. <laughs> Who forms a union? Rita and Phil. It's a oh, union. They oh. form a union. And there is an individual willingness to make some kind of sacrifice and to be generous. I want to also point out, just in terms of like really strict capitalism, yeah. when Rita says, we'll live here, and Bill Murray says, we'll rent to start, <laughs> I think it's very funny and apparently was ad-libbed by Murray. Again, he's, he's good at what he does. Fantastic you know. line. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> and... I actually meant to mention this earlier, which is, do you remember when people used to be like, oh, he ad-libbed at all those lines? For some reason, like, this was a 90s, 80s thing. Like, people would talk about Bill Murray and, like, Robin Williams yeah. ad-libbing so much in their movies. Anyway, mm -hmm. for some reason, we don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> I also want to talk about Pops or Dad. Okay. Yeah. The unhoused person. Mm -hmm. I think that that is particularly upsetting because it rings true for people mm -hmm. in that helping the homeless or unhoused people can seem pointless yeah because we recognize that 
something is a system, right? Homelessness is a system. Individual action can't do much good. That is, however, not true. I mean, there's this, you know, as in all things, there's balance, right? Yes. This, the problem of homelessness is mm-hmm. a systemic problem. Yeah. Individual actions can make a difference in individual lives. And in fact, there is a approach to homelessness called housing first, which is now actually done a fair number of places. It's not the dominant way of dealing with unhoused people, but it's pretty popular mm-hmm. in some places, which is to just give them fucking houses. <laughs> like it, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it is, it is f- just put them in homes. You don't drug test them. You don't make them get a job. Mm-hmm. You just give them a place to live. And that has been shown to break the cycle of being unhoused. Interesting. And okay. I also find it to be the most humane thing to do. And that's sort of what makes me really sad about the Bill Murray you know, going through that because I think it does help. I mean, there's a philosophical question of can you stop someone from dying and how come he's able to stop that guy from dying but is able to stop the kid from falling out of the tree? Right, or the mayor from choking to death. Like that was actually... There are limits apparently. Yeah. We can move on. Okay. To... Discorded notes. These are the questions that Dan has collected. To come to the Discord and collect these questions. Yes. So the first question is from Josh F., which is How long do we think that Phil was actually stuck in the loop? In other words, if that was linear time, how long did that loop last? You know, my initial answer was that, like, maybe it was a couple of years, but the more I think about it, the more I think that's wrong. I think it's a lot longer. Harold Ramis has said 10,000 years. Oh, wow. Because that's the Buddhist metric for how long it takes for a soul to evolve, which I think is a fun answer. I don't think that's actually true, quote unquote. Yeah. Apparently, someone tried to do some kind of math about this and came up Mm -hmm. with like eight years, nine years, something like that. Well, also, there are clear moments in the film where time has passed in the sense of like, you can tell Phil has acquired a dramatically greater amount of knowledge about what goes on in that day. And the question is, how long does that last? But yeah. So it's a long. I like the ten thousand hour, the ten thousand years though. That's a that that's is kind of cool. Fantastic yes. answer. And Dan Brennan asks, "Was this your first movie where you noticed Stephen Tobolowsky? Stephen Tobolowsky plays Ned Ryerson. It is a. I think he's in the movie for maybe five minutes, maybe ten. It's a memorable role. There is no denying this. The answer for me is no because I remembered Stephen Tobolowsky from Basic Instinct, where he plays. He has a brief scene there also, but it's it's a compelling performance where he plays the psychiatrist who sets up the is it Sharon Stone or is it Gene Triplehorn who's the psycho we will never know what about you Anna <laughs> they're both psychos that's a trick question yes yeah so I don't remember him from before this oh, okay although I definitely remember him here I I will say that he has some charming things to say about the movie including the fact that if this is the movie that people know him the most for well then how can you complain and that and Danny Rubin has said something similar by the way they they both have incredibly Almost everyone that has worked on this movie, even mm-hmm. though the Bill Murray problem existed, talks yeah. about how pleased they are to be associated with it. Yeah. So. I mean, this is a, you know, this is, I think, you know, we didn't really talk about this all much, but this is one of those movies that I think when it was released at the time got pretty good reviews and, you know, it was generally thought of favorably, but its reputation has gone up in the 30 years since. Oh, I we didn't have time for me to get into like yeah, it's yeah. on like the AFI top 100 films of all time. It's been chosen right. by the Smithsonian to be one of the films that they archive for all time. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. it is considered an American classic. Yeah. So now, Dan. Yes. Yes, Anna. For cold sci-fi winter, we mm-hmm. have a rating scale of 0 to 100 Celsius. <laughs> yes. Fahrenheit is superior. Mm-hmm. Was this movie a cold fish or was it an Arctic weather blast headed towards Altoona? I got to give this one a 90. I recognize the the issues that you have brought up. And yeah, like, let me put it this way. I winced once or twice when I was watching this movie in, in that sense. But I do think there is a fundamental decency about the film that lets it hold up. And I, let me put it this way. I'm glad AFI is keeping it and archiving it because I think it deserves that. It's the Harold Ramis of yeah. it that comes through. I think that for you almost could look at it as, as a karmic thing. For as terrible a person as Bill Murray appears to be, Harold Ramis appears to have been a fantastic person. Yeah. 
and yeah. it is his his personality that shows through and <laughs> fortunately right yeah. yeah and makes the film i guess i'm saying yeah i'm 90 let's go with 90 okay Oh my gosh, it's, it's the debris from a falling truck with a groundhog dying. Don't drive angry. Debris field. Yeah. Uh, this is where we talk about the stuff we didn't already get a chance to talk about. Dan, speed round. Let's go. What do you got? Okay, Anna, this might blow your mind. Did you know that Michael Shannon is in this film? That was going to be the first thing that I said, Dan. Michael Shannon is in this movie, Dan. I was blown away when I realized that was him. So Michael Shannon plays the... A one of the newly, or like a twenty thing. He's one of the newlyweds. Yeah, he's the one who freaks out because Phil gets the yeah. WrestleMania tickets. And I mean, like, it's just amazing to see Michael Shannon, like, you know, act like a teenager. By the way, know, yeah, he has unpleasant memories of Bill Murray. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Well, fair enough. Totally fair. Yep. Yep. But so apparently, Bill Murray was like rude to him, uh, verbally kind of shoot him out for yeah. something, and Harold Ramis made Bill Murray apologize. So, wow. Okay. Again, Harold Ramis, decent individual. Yep. He wins out. That was actually going to be my big thing, I think, oh. <laughs> from the movie. I, I We've talked about a lot. So I will let you take another while I try to think of something else that we missed. You know what we haven't talked about in, in the movie is we didn't talk about Chris Elliott at all. And like, it's weird because in some ways, I think this might be the most normal role he has in any <laughs> film. I'm not kidding when I say that. I mean, it's not like I've seen a ton of Chris Elliott stuff, but like, like he's just a sort of normal cameraman schlub in this film. And again, the the one moment where he says to Phil, "You touched me, man!" Like he just like so moved. That that is a good laugh out loud line. And like you know, again, I it's remember like, uh, the golden days of David Letterman and Chris Elliott. Those were those were good comedy days, Dan. All right, yeah. I have a couple of things that okay. I remembered. Gobbler's knob sounds really obscene. <laughs> you have to admit yeah no not gonna deny that and then there's the scene where he robs the bank or robs yeah. the, the uh, truck. money truck right and returns to town in a mercedes wearing a vaquero outfit yeah and as there's a jailbait joke with the girl he's with that's not cool i will Fair. say yes. that if one of your dreams in life is to roll into town dressed as a vaquero i find that kind of charming <laughs> It's a very specific thing to want. You have to, yeah. it, 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 I like it. Anything else? The only other thing I've got really is like, I, again, it's one of those things that doesn't quite hold up, but like, you know, you see Rita at the very beginning of the film, like having fun with the blue screen, the green screen. And I kept thinking like, she's new to broadcasting, but I was looking at that thing. Wow. You're really new to it. Cause like, you know, only a, a complete newbie would do that. Like, you know, like it's, it's the coolest thing. Oh, I read that ever. differently. But, I read it as she's okay. having fun. Oh, she is having fun. Yes. Totally yeah, sure. I read it not yeah. necessarily she's never seen it before, but more like, oh, look at this. I can, yeah, yeah. you know, how often do you get to stand in front of the weather That's place, true. you know? Fair enough. Yes, so yes. Okay. I, I like that, that interpretation for you, better. Dan. I okay. hope I recovered that for you. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that. I think that is it for our show. Unless okay. we wake up tomorrow and have to do this all over again. But Dan, it has been a pleasure. Let's remind folks, be a patron. Please. And beginning uh, next week, we're going to start with uh, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. That is correct. And until next time, keep this channel open for more. <laughs>